As soon as I left the Auberge de Jean Catard, I went to bed, and I slept the clock ground, all but one hour. Then I washed my teeth for the first time in a fortnight. I bathed, I had my hair cut, I got my clothes out of pawn. I had two glorious days of loafing. I even went in my best suit to the Auberge, leaned against the bar, and spent five francs on a bottle of English beer. <laughs> it was a curious sensation, being a customer where you've been a slave's slave. Boris was sorry that I'd left the restaurant just at the moment when we were lancé, and there was a chance of making money. I've heard from him since. He tells me that he is making a hundred francs a day and set up a girl who is très sérieuse and never smells of garlic. I spent a day wandering about our quarter, saying goodbye to everyone. It was on this day that Charlie told me about the death of old Rucal the miser, who had once lived in this quarter. Very likely Charlie was lying as usual, but, well, it was a good story. Rucal died aged 74, a year or two before I went to Paris, but the people in the quarter still talked of him while I was there. He never equalled Daniel Dancer, um, or anyone of that kind, but he was an interesting character. He went to Le Chau every morning to pick up damaged vegetables, and he ate cat's meat, and he wore newspaper instead of underclothes, and he used the wainscoting of his room for firewood, and made himself a pair of trousers out of a sack. And all this with half a million francs invested. I should very much like to have known him. Like many misers, Rucol came to a bad end through putting his money into a wildcat scheme. One day, a Jew appeared in the quarter, an alert, business-like young chap who had a first-rate plan for smuggling cocaine into England. It was easy enough, of course, to buy cocaine in Paris, and the smuggling would be quite simple in itself, only there's always some spy who betrays the plan to the customer or the police. It is said that this is often done by the very people who sell the cocaine, because, well, the smuggling trade is in the hands of a large combine. They do not want competition. The Jew, however, swore that there was no danger. He knew a way of getting cocaine direct from Vienna, not through the usual channels, and there would be no blackmail to pay. He got into touch with Rucol through a young Pole, a student at the Sorbonne, who was going to put 4,000 francs into the scheme if Rucol would put 6,000. For this, they could buy 10 pounds of cocaine, which would be worth, well, a small fortune in England. The Pole and the Jew had a tremendous struggle to get the money from between old Rucol's claws. 6,000 francs was not much. He had more than that sewn into the mattress in his room, but it was agony for him to part, even with a sou. The Pole and the Jew were at him for weeks on end, explaining and bullying, coaxing, arguing, going down on their knees and imploring him to produce the money. The old man was half frantic between greed and fear. His bowels yearned at the thought of getting perhaps 50,000 francs profit, and yet he couldn't bring himself to risk the money. 
He used to sit in a corner with his head in his hands, droning, and sometimes yelling out in agony. And often he would kneel down. He was very pious, and pray for strength. But still, he couldn't do it. But at last, more from exhaustion than from anything else, he gave in, quite suddenly. He slit open the mattress where the money was concealed, and he handed over six thousand francs to the Jew. The Jew delivered the cocaine the same day, and then promptly vanished. And meanwhile, as it were not surprising after the fuss Rucot had made, the affair had been noised all over the quarter. The very next morning, the hotel was raided and searched by the police. Rucot and the Pole were in agonies. The police were downstairs, working their way up and searching every room in turn, and there was the great packet of cocaine on the table, with no place to hide it and no chance of escaping down the stairs. The Pole was for throwing the stuff out of the window, but Rucot would not hear of it. Charlie told me that he had been present at the scene. He said that when they tried to take the packet from Rucot, he clasped it to his breast and struggled like a madman, although he was seventy-four years old. He was wild with fright, but he would rather go to prison than throw his money away. At last, when the police were searching only one floor below, somebody had an idea. A man on Rucot's floor had a dozen tins of face powder, which he was selling on commission and it was suggested that the cocaine could be put into the tins and passed off as face powder. The powder was hastily thrown out of the window, and the cocaine substituted, and the tins were put openly on Rucot's table, as though there was nothing to conceal. A few minutes later the police came to search Rucot's room. They tapped the walls, they looked up the chimney, they turned out the drawers and they examined the floorboards, and then, just as they were about to give it up, Having found nothing, the inspector noticed the tins on the table. Yeah, he said. Have a look at those tins. I had noticed them. What's in them, eh? Face powder, the Pole said as calmly as he could manage. But at the same instant, Rucot let out a loud groaning noise from alarm, and the police became suspicious immediately. They opened one of the tins and tipped out the contents, and after smelling it, the inspector said he believed it was cocaine. Rucol and the Pole began swearing on the names of the saints that it was only face powder, but it was no use. The more they protested, the more suspicious the police became. The two men were arrested and led off to the police station, followed by half the quarter. At the station... Rucol and the Pole were interrogated by the commissaire while a tin of cocaine was sent away to be analysed. Charlie said that the scene Rucol made was beyond description. He wept, prayed, he made contradictory statements, he denounced the Pole all at once, and so loud he could be heard half a street away. The policeman almost burst with laughing at him. After an hour, a policeman came back with a tin of cocaine and a note from the anal an analyst, and he was laughing. "'This is uh, not cocaine, monsieur,' he said. "'What? Not cocaine?' said the commissaire. "'Mais alors, then, what is it?' "'It is face powder.' 
Vuko and the Pole were released at once, entirely exonerated, but very angry. The Jew had double-crossed them. Afterwards, when the excitement was over, it turned out that he'd played the same trick on two other people in the quarter. The Pole was glad enough to escape, even though he had lost his four thousand francs. But poor old Ducol was utterly broken down. He took to his bed at once, and all that day and half the night they could hear him thrashing about, mumbling, and sometimes yelling out at the top of his voice. Six thousand francs, nom de Jesus Christ! Six thousand francs! Three days later, he had some kind of stroke, and in a fortnight he was dead. Of a broken heart, said Charlie.